0: Hi, I'm Lizette LaFuente, your host of What I'm Hearing is, a podcast where we discuss political, social, cultural, or any other controversial matters that we want to make sure that we're understanding correctly. In today's episode, we are going to be discussing the recent congressional hearings with the presidents of Harvard, UPenn, and MIT. And if you don't know what happened, I'll give you a little description. So on December 5th, Claudine Gay, Liz McGill, and Sally Kornbluth of the University of Pennsylvania, Harvard University, and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology were grilled before the House Education Committee on their response to the campus protests surrounding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Each president, when questioned directly, failed to take a decisive stance against anti-Semitism at their universities, which was likely in an effort to protect freedom of speech and academic inquiry. Uh, This, however, disappointed members of the committee and ultimately the American public. So the result was there was a massive backlash, which ultimately led to the resignations of Liz McGill and Claudine Gay in the weeks following the hearing. And it also spurred investigations into hate speech on campus and an outpour of public disgrace. In this episode of What I'm Hearing Is, my friend Dallas and I are discussing the implications of the hearing on public discourse and not only surrounding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, although that is the context of this episode, uh, but generally on, on free speech overall. The dialogue isn't meant to impose solutions. We don't have answers to any of our questions. Rather, the point is just to raise questions in order to elicit a more profound consideration of our biases and our personal freedoms. We acknowledge the weight of the subject matter that we're discussing here, uh, especially its impact on the Israeli, Palestinian, and Black communities. And since we cannot represent these communities ourselves, our hope is just that our earnest curiosity and commitment to freedom of thought is recognizable and challenged where we fall short of that mission. As this is our very first podcast episode, Dallas and I are sharing a microphone and we're learning our rhythm, but perhaps... In spite or because of these novelties, we hope you enjoy the episode and encourage you to subscribe if you'd like to hear more. All right, welcome to our very first episode. So today we're going to discuss... Free speech, and we're going to be discussing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, particularly as how it's come up in the recent congressional hearings with the presidents of MIT, UPenn, and Harvard universities, which will bring us to sort of the meaning of terms that are being used to speak about the conflict, and just anything, any other anecdotes or ideas that come up for us as we read about and, you know, encounter this subject in, in our circles and otherwise.
1: I guess I would want to start by just, first of all, recognizing that to talk about free speech in a time where horrendous acts of violence are happening in the world is a huge privilege in and among itself. And that questioning whether or not we're allowed to say terms like genocide or intifada or river to the sea in and of itself feels like a distraction from what is actually happening. But also, I think it's really important to, as these terms are highly contested, it's important for us to talk about why they're contested and, you know, just how, how we can even have these conversations about what's happening when people don't agree on like really specific rhetoric. Something that I found what really interesting is just the relationship to free speech, political movements, and college campuses. When we look back on Vietnam and what happened during civil rights into the free speech movement on campuses, into the Vietnam War, which kind of continued people speaking out for free speech on college campuses, we come from a history in America where actually campuses were used to be much more politically policed and students were not allowed to be involved in political matters. So I guess just historically looking at You know, where this conversation actually comes from really feels like it is just a long history of trying to diminish speech of the youth and asking them to not have an opinion. And then when they do have an opinion, weaponizing that opinion against them through a larger structure.
0: I agree with what you said about this being distracting. I remember when I first came across the article about the congressional hearing and the scandal that it was producing in public media. I remember my initial instinct being like offended. I'm like, oh, we have somehow managed to make this about us. (laughs) But I, I recognize that it's also easy for me to say that because I'm not on these campuses. It's just probably extraordinarily troubling for the people that feel like they're being targeted by hateful language. You know I don't want that to I don't want to minimize that, but it, what I thought was interesting was I listened to the daily episode on this article on the congressional hearing. And there was some interesting context that came up. So a couple of the conservative congressmen brought up that there were conservative visitors to campuses in the past who were not invited warmly because the, the political lean is liberal. And so they felt that the conservative opinion was offensive. So one of them was a, a Trump administration immigration official. They didn't want to allow him onto, I believe it was the campus of UPenn. I can't remember which campus it was exactly, so I apologize for not being able to reference that. But it was either UPenn, MIT, or Harvard, of the three universities I represented. He was seen to have used nativist rhetoric in the past about immigration. And then. Congressman Glenn Groffman said that in 2020, they did a study where they took an analysis of the Harvard student body, and only 2% of the Harvard student body were Trump supporters, which was a major departure from what represented the overall country at that time, which was more closer to like a 50-50 split. It's interesting what they brought up about there not being the same representation of ideology on these college campuses as there is in America in general. And... I can't deny that that does I suppose seem unfair as difficult as it is for me to say that because I also wouldn't want to listen to nativist rhetoric at a college or university that I'm a student at that's my personal where I stand there but on the subject of of having true diversity and range of thought present then yeah it's not it doesn't actually allow for for that environment
1: when I listen to the hearing I also heard that about the two percent being trump supporters and then it reminded me of when biden won i remember i think you actually shared these maps of the country based on like who had voted for republican versus democrat and it was like all you know when you pull white men over 50 the entire country is red mm. when you poll mm black women or women of color, it's all blue. And so it raised the question for me because then one of the one of the follow up questions in the hearing was like, how how are you actually creating diversity on your campus? And so it just raised this question for me that like as a society, we hopefully are working for the cultural, racial, sexual diversity in all of these various components. But just as we're as we're like striving for diversity of backgrounds, I think we are going to lose a diversity in ideologies because so many people who are from oppressed backgrounds who haven't been given to the chance to be in universities, to be in these spaces, to have their voices seen and heard, they are not conservative. Mm -hmm. for the most part so how yeah how do you create a diversity of thought when you are also working towards a diversity of
0: identity that's true. true the demographic of people who attend universities is young and young people typically lean left Another thing I wanted to bring up was, and I know you've done a lot of research on this, the definition of terms. So there have been been some other articles that have come out after the initial one about the hearing where they got into a more thorough description of exactly what the protests look like. And some of them include students running into classrooms and shouting things that seem more blatantly anti-Semitic. There's there's certain a- anecdotes about students who feel unsafe, Jewish students who feel unsafe on campus. And there are other anecdotes of Jewish students who don't see an issue with the language that's being used and doesn't make them feel threatened. So there's not a unanimous consensus about what the charge of these terms are for everyone. And you and I have talked about this. It seems like language that is used in an effort to call for peace to some people just sounds like a call for death. So I wanted to talk about that. When I say this, you hear that. And I know you've had a lot of conversations with a Jewish friend of yours about this. So I wanted maybe you, for you to speak on what you found out.
1: What comes up for me first is the just the conflation of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. So, you know, they didn't want Jason Waters on campus. Jason Waters has been very, he's a very public figure who's spoken out a lot against Israel. And he's one of the people who was listed as like, I can't believe you, you allowed this like anti-Semite to come onto college campuses, but he's not an anti-Semite. He's, he's an anti-Zionist. So I think that when we talk about words that call for peace or this is really challenging right because it's like first of all i don't know this term peace i also uh, have been like qu- questioning that a lot in my mind because i think that peace is something that's like is an I- ideology that's sold to us in the west to allow like our own militaristic ideals to kind of run rampant in other countries in order to continue to preserve peace, quote unquote, in the West. So I guess I I am struggling also with that terminology, but I, you know, people are actively like seeking to end certain types of violence. And I think that that's like what we really get into in this topic in general is that Palestinians are working to end violence against Palestinians is you know Israelis and Jewish people are working to end violence against them but when you inherently feel that a state has to exist in order for you to feel safe then what violences are we are is that state allowed to perpetuate to protect their safety so i guess my question and all of that is when we talk about someone like Jason Waters not being allowed to be on campus and someone saying, how dare you let this anti-Semite on campus, he is actually calling for an end to violence and if you're not allowed to question a government's use of violence or force or military without being accused of being anti the entire population of that state then we're, we're not given an opportunity to question government. And I think that in the West, that is what we are actively working to protect all the time, right? Like we're working to protect democracy so that we as people have the ability to ask questions of our government. But if someone like Jason Waters isn't allowed to publicly speak out against Israel's violence on Palestine without being considered someone who hates Jewish people and not being allowed to speak on campuses, then I think that's where we really get into free speech. And then then I would question also, what is free speech actually working to protect? Why is that so important in our country? Because it's not, we're not working to protect truth. We're not working to protect peace in those instances, but hopefully we're working to protect free speech in order to protect democracy. Democracy is not being protected when we're not allowed to question authority.
0: I love that question. To what ends? Like, what is the purpose of us protecting the, our speech? Let's remember that when we are frustrated that these campuses are facing pressure to reduce freedom of ac- academic inquiry. But it is tricky because there is a conflation of terms and it's scary. It's scary that words that mean no more suffering to some sound like. Die. I want you to die. And that level of misunderstanding is dangerous because you can justify saying, you can't tell, you can't say that you want people to die, you can justify, you can justify saying that. But if that means not saying, I want there to be peace, then what are we actually communicating? I do agree that free speech is extraordinarily important because we should be able to question our government, which is why I'm so interested in this subject. And I know that it's loaded because we don't really have a definition of what hate speech actually is. And as we're seeing in this particular situation, that's something different to different people. So if we can't be on the same page about where we draw the line, then how do we ever draw one? And it is tricky, because on the subject of free speech, I mean, I accept that that merit includes the fact that I'm going to have to listen to things that I... Don't like hearing. Having to protect this freedom means that people are going to say things that are ex- extremely offensive. And I just have to be, I have to accept that as part of the package.
1: I guess I just wanted to elaborate on the words in question because like a lot of what was being brought up in the actual case was this term intifada which I do understand both intifadas have been very violent and many lives have been lost in both Palestine and, and in Israel and other historical references like Arab Spring was considered an intifada. Arab Spring in terms of how we regurgitated that into our own democracy was then used to spur occupy and people were like the western world was very in support of arab spring and it was like this uprising because that's what intifada means a great shaking off and in more colloquially Colloquial terms, it means uprising. And that if that uprising is towards governments that we in the West don't agree with, or that we can all agree are inhumane or oppressive, then that term is okay. That intifada was, that was fine. But now we're like seeing this term used again, and now suddenly it's a call for. you know genocide of an entire people right so i just think you know when we question what these words mean and how we consider them in our world and consider their use we have to also question like when has that word been okay and when is that word not okay and why
0: yeah putting language in a broader historical context because it is easy to forget things that have happened previously especially when it's Young people having the conversation because we, things that have happened within our lifetimes, have a greater emotional charge because we've witnessed them. And I think that's an interesting point as well that we're seeing with the pro Palestinian movement, how it contains a lot of young people because young people did not witness the Holocaust. So, yes, contextualizing language is extremely useful and important because I think that we've seen some words being co opted and rebranded right? Not just in this issue, but in others. And understanding what those words are for and what they originally meant, make sure that we don't depart entirely from their intended meaning. Let's talk about Zionism for a second. How has that word been misunderstood? This is where I think language here gets
1: really complicated because we're talking about a group of people who are, who are a religion and a culture and an ethnic group. And so where I get myself confused with that term, do we see Zionism as a religious ideology or a political ideology? Because of the way that we see Jewish people, I think that that gets confused.
0: I think it's both since it has to do with land. I'm not saying that it's natural, but given that the world is divided into numerous governments and borders, and the fact that one of the important moments in the birth of this issue came from political intervention But just a little context, a really brief surface-level context for listeners who don't know what Zionism is. According to the Oxford Dictionary, Zionism is a movement for the re-establishment, development and protection of a Jewish nation in what is now Israel. And it was established as a political organization in 1897 under Theodore Herzl and was later led by Chem Weissman. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Okay. Okay. The next item for the meaning of terms was from the river to the sea. So you shared an article with me from Al Jazeera. And it's another one of those things where, again, we're talking about freedom for Palestinians, which, because they're on the same land, sounds like no freedom for Jewish people. So I just want to see if you wanted to talk about what you learned about that term. First
1: of all, I think a lot of people who, who are at marches saying these chants, do not know the history of them do not know the history of the intifadas do not know the violence that those intifadas included and that's not to say that they shouldn't use those words But I think that what we see on college campuses and what we see just around the globe in many movements, especially progressive movements, is that people join a group and feel ostracized if they're not fully enabling every single piece of rhetoric that comes out of that group without doing their own research. And I just think that that really happens a lot in leftist movements. And it's not to say that if you do the research, you won't continue to have that belief system, but I think there are a lot of people out there who do not know what they are talking about and so when we talk about free speech like going back to that idea it's like is free speech just you having your own ability to say whatever anyone else around you is saying because to me the protection of free speech is like the protection of knowledge the protection of inquiry that other countries just do not have rights to do so the choice to join movements without knowing The rhetoric to which you are speaking is part of, like, what we're fighting for, right? Is, like, your right to, like, actually do that work. That was a like a side tangent but i feel like from the river to the sea many palestinians have like very different beliefs of what that actually means and a lot of palestinians when they're like interviewed about this don't actually believe that that's something that is going to happen within their lifetimes which is also something that we have to look at also when we talk about liberation why does and i would say more than peace i would say freedom why does freedom for one mean genocide for another and then another thing when we talk about genocide or when we talk about these big war crimes generally it's not fair to compare every war crime to the worst form of that war crime and then i think like bringing it back to something that's maybe more like interpersonal i think about like when we talk about sexual violence and it's like oh well that wasn't violent enough for it to be considered assault and so when we talk about these terms it's like to what degree is it that thing and why when it's to a lesser degree why can we not call it that
0: Right. Leveraging certain terms only when it conveniences us. And again, this issue of a lack of uh, unanimity around the definition of things. I was thinking about the study in The Social Animal by David Brooks about the boys in the camp. Basically, I was just thinking about this idea of tribalism and how when the identity of a tribe is defined by the antagonism toward another tribe, then there will never be peace. And I think that's part of the issue with calls for peace for Palestine sound like calls for genocide against Jews because the identities of Palestinians and Jews are so closely intertwined with being antagonistic toward one another where if that could be eliminated to some degree which is easier said than done then i think that we would be able to hear things more clearly and the story that i was referring to about the boys was they took 19 kids or something uh, around the age of 11 10 something like that to a camp and they divided them into two separate groups and they said uh they just divided them into two separate groups I think that's kind of all they did. And then the groups proceeded to give themselves their own names and whatever the other group did, their group did the opposite in order to distinguish themselves. And that's just an interesting human behavior as well. Things that we do in excess in order to distinguish ourselves. And I think that it's its almost like that we're becoming more polarized because we're becoming more polarized. You know what I mean? It's like, well, you're going to be more radical that way. Well, then I'm going to be more radical this way. And so we're just moving farther and farther from the center. But uh um, Um, I do think that it starts with identity shift. The identity in each of these groups is wrapped up in the extinction of the other in this moment so they can't hear one another and changing that very premise just I think is going to make it easier for there to be dialogue.
1: I've been thinking a lot about this term being a good ancestor which is like you're always thinking you know like five generations ahead of you and I just feel like no one is being a good ancestor right now. (laughs) in in it (laughs) so yeah I think that you know this uh just the the amount the huge amount that we're setting ourselves back right now is just really hard to watch but I want to go back into the court case and just talk a little bit more about that and some of the research that we did Something I found really interesting in the court case, which we talked about this a little bit before the podcast. Sorry, guys. We had a conversation before this. Um, but I was mentioning that one of the judges, a white woman, was talking to the, the black woman. I think she's the president of Harvard. What's her name? The judge.
0: Elise
1: Stefanik. Elise Stefanik. Talking to Claudine J. Elise claudine gay she makes this really big deal about talking to claudine she's asking her over and over again she's like what is the number one hate crime in america what is the number one hate crime in america and she listed it as anti-semitism which i don't due to my extensive research of hate crimes in america over the past few weeks i don't believe that to be true and if that is true currently right now in america it hasn't been true statistically in fbi's research for the last five years for the last five years the number one hate crime has been against ethnicities and minorities not due to religious contexts it's so important in every single one of these instances one for us to be seeking truth and two for us to be looking at other hierarchical systems that get in the way of us being able to see truth So when you see on television a white woman who is a judge who's questioning a black woman and, you know, who do we believe in that context and why do we believe them? And I think that that small window of how race and racism plays a role in the larger question of what's going on right now is just one small instance of how much we are constantly impacted by other forms of prejudice that have been built into our current social structures. And beyond that, it brings up also the question of like, you know, when we're in a court of law, is free speech protecting truth or is it protecting falsehoods? mm
0: mm-hmm. We're not minimizing that violence against Jews is heightened right now. Dallas is just putting that into a larger context. This quote, though, quite literally stuck out to me, to your point about the image of Elise Stefanik speaking to Claudine Gay about hate crimes. So it's from Bill Ackman, who is a Harvard alumni, and he's now a billionaire hedge fund manager. He's talking about Claudine Gay. And he says, quote, shrinking the pool of candidates based on required race, gender and or sexual orientation criteria is not the right approach to identifying the best leaders for our most prestigious universities, end quote. And he also says, quote, and it is also not good for those awarded the office of president who find themselves in a role they would likely not have obtained were it not for a fat finger on the scale. End quote. That's Bill Ackman. It is racist to assume that Claudine Gay got her role as the president of Harvard on account of her race and not on the account of her credentials. And it's easy to assume that if she were a white person that she would have gotten in there because of her credentials. But because she's a black person, she likely didn't work as hard.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like we could say so much more on free speech because I feel like what ideologies are we actually working to protect when we talk about free speech? What people are we looking to protect when we talk about free speech? What ideas are we trying to protect when we talk about free speech? And I think so much of American politics comes out of, you know, these almost idealistic desires that the our country was founded on that are not concrete and it creates these huge you know portals for questioning which i think are fundamentally flawed but also give us a lot of opportunity to question ourselves question our government you know question our communities which i think is really healthy but so many people are just trying to preserve what they want america to look like and i think because i do also believe that progressives do diminish the work of conservatives as much as it happens the opposite way maybe it's time we all started being more open to hearing the other
0: side i mean this is i think this is just a great way Here's a quote from Sally Kornbluth, who's the president of MIT, something that she said in the hearing that really lingered for me. She said, these students are thrown together in classrooms, in laboratories and dormitories every day. This is where the dialogue is taking place and we have to ensure that they have the tools for, this is where I offer emphasis, constructive communication across differences.
1: This is a dialogue of questioning. You know, I think we're, we're both very much working to move out of dogma and into curiosity. So that's whoever is listening. That is, that is what is at the heart of these conversations.
0: Well, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to hear more, stick around. We will be speaking about potentially controversial topics regularly. So get ready to cringe. And until the next installment, enjoy your week.